The Cinema Limbo podcast is part of Podnose, the UK's leading independent entertainment podcasting network. For episode archives of Cinema Limbo and all of the shows on the network, visit us at www.podnose.com. You can also follow us on Twitter via at Podnose or send us an email via admin at podnose.com. certainties are a warm blanket, protecting us from a cold world. Staying ensnared in this state may not be the best choice, however, because time is still passing. My name is Jeremy Phillips, writer, critic, and cowpoke, and you're listening to Cinema Limbo. Tonight's presentation is Lonely Are the Brave, a 1962 western starring Kirk Douglas and Walter Matthau, and my guest is Chris Arnsby, who joins me in his homestead on the Northern Line. Hello, Chris. Hello. What can you tell me about the modern Western? The modern Western? Uh, wasn't it killed off by... Um, uh, now, great. We're right, at the, we're right at the start of the podcast, and I've just forgotten the name of the film that killed off United Artists. Heaven's Gate. Heaven's Gate, that was it. Didn't Heaven's Gate... And then, and then Clint Eastwood made Unforgiven, and everyone lived happily ever after. Yeah, that's kind of the um, reductionist view of what happened to the Western. Um, it could be argued that it was killed off in the 70s by the, the death of the studio system mm. and auteurs wanting to do things that are more anti-establishment and more uh, ambiguous in their morality. And particularly, you could say that Westerns died the day that John Wayne died mm. because he was kind of the last... Bast, the last big cowboy star who was still making old-fashioned westerns. Yeah, I mean, he, that's I mean true. his last film, The Shootist, was it was a little more revisionist, but it was still about you know the the good old-fashioned gunfighter, and maybe he wasn't quite the hero that he always was, and and then maybe he's you know aging and living in the modern living in a, a version of the modern world, but um, but here he is and fighting the good fight. But um, Lonely of the Brave is kind of the modern Western or the revisionist Western a good five years before the yeah, studio system early. fell apart. <laughs> yeah, it, it wasn't what I was expecting at all. And I happened to look on Wikipedia at the end of, uh, after I'd watched the film and saw that it had been picked for showing at the White House for Kennedy. And I've also heard Kennedy described as the last gunslinger as well, in a way, uh, particularly by Stephen King in the course of oh, yes. the gunslinger. But yeah, so there is that sense that yes, you know, the Wild West had just kind of faded out of the popular imagination. It reminds me of um, the scene in the Truman Show, where Truman, as a little boy, says that he wants to be an explorer, mm. and his teacher pulls down a map and points to the map of the world and says, "Well, I'm sorry, Truman, there's nowhere left to explore. It's we've found all of it," and. Here in the Wild West of the early 60s, 
it's not wild anymore. There's roads everywhere. Yeah. And the film starts with a cowboy asleep under a tree in the prairie, very classic old-fashioned image. He opens his eyes, looks up in the sky, and there's the contrails of a jet going overhead. Yeah, it's a really clever, disruptive opening, because it started, and I, I think not going into it, not knowing anything about it, I just assumed that it was a film about a cowboy, and of course you immediately default to assuming that it's therefore it's going to be set sometime around the... The late 19th century. Yeah, that's right, yeah, 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 the, 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 the Old West period. And yes, and, and, and I really like that, actually, just as a way of opening the film, because it, it immediately unsettles you. Yeah. And there's, a, there's that sequence not very long afterwards where he tries to cross the road on his horse. And just that very, very weird juxtaposition of seeing modern vehicles and things. Yes. And a, and a guy dressed up as a cowboy. <laughs> it's, very, yeah. very, very, it's a terrific image. This film was recommended to me for the podcast... By my mother. Oh, okay. And she's very kindly contributed some notes here wow. at my suggestion um, of her thoughts about the film. Um, so we'll dip into these as we go. But hmm. so she starts off still areas untouched by modern civilization where the traditional cowboy can still exist, but are there? Off road vehicles, helicopters, and freeways all intrude into the landscape. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's for the, and that obviously. Uh, try not to discuss the film out of order too much, but yeah, yeah that that comes into play later on, particularly. <sighs> yeah, because I mean, well, we, I think we, we we've established in previous podcasts that we've both been to the Mojave Desert. Yes. Um, and when you're on foot in it, it feels very bleak and it feels in the middle of nowhere. But yeah, it's it's not these days, is it at all? No, I mean it's the Mojave Desert isn't that big. As I think, as far as North American deserts go, <laughs> certainly, um, and you know, you can you know drive for about an hour in any direction, you'll come to a, a significant mm. um, settlement of some sort. But um, our main character, uh, Jack Burns, is living in his own mind in a world that still adheres to the old cowboy ways, even as the, even though he acknowledges that technology has changed, mm. that you know, there are cars and planes and helicopters and all this sort of thing, and he's quite happy with that, that the old ethics and the old uh, ideas of a man living on his own... Yeah, being self-reliant. Being, being self-reliant and that kind of thing, those, those are still true as well. I was just trying to work out, and, and I may end up going down a bit of a blind alley with this thought, whether this was kind of the earliest possible date that you could set a film that said the old ways don't exist anymore. Because prior... This is, what, 62? Yeah. You know, it was that helicopters were just starting to come in. You know, air travel was starting to become a bit more accessible and stuff like that. And this was when you saw, in the wake of the Second World War, you, you, you really saw the American economy kicking into gear and the interstate road network being built up and stuff like that and I just kind of wonder whether effectively 1962 was kind of like effectively the earliest possible date when you could set a film that just said yeah you can't do this anymore. I think you're right I mean you could in theory do something like that set in the 30s mm. but the old ways would still be easily within living memory. Yeah. 1900 for example you know Burns would have been born before 1900. Yes. You remember the turn of the century when 
before you saw cars everywhere, before Los Angeles was a huge metropolis. Mm. Um, but in this way, Burns has grown up in the modern world, yes. or, or with a with awareness of the modern world. So he's he's steadfastly sticking to these old ways that were old when he was born. Yeah, he's more defiantly out of time than he would be if this was a film in the 1930s when you would still have all the kind of the Dust Bowl stuff. and yeah, uh, the Depression um, particularly. Yeah, yeah. But where, that for, for, for a lot of people, you know, in the, I don't want to say flyover states, but yeah, no, in no. The, the, the central part of the US, that was still perfectly normal. Yeah. And for, you know, farming in the US in the early 60s, it was becoming more mechanical. Mm. It was becoming more technological. And although there was still a need for people like Jack who were cow hands and managed these sorts of things, the idea that his entire way of life is unchanged is absurd. Yeah, yeah. Thinking about it, it actually bears resemblance to The Entertainer. Okay, I don't, not one I've seen, I'm afraid. John Osborne's play. Oh, okay. Um... The story is that Laurence Olivier went to see Look Back in Anger and was stunned by this incredible step forward in theatre and this incredibly modern, angry voice in theatre. And he contacted John Osborne and said, I'd like you to write something for me, please. And he responded by writing The Entertainer, which Mm. is about the son of a music hall comedian who is still performing in the late 50s in... In, in peers, in summer shows and other things, to dwindling hmm. audiences, still holding on by his fingertips to these old ways and refusing to acknowledge that the world has moved on. And still doing these, you know, wearing a bowler hat and this fancy striped suit and doing these old gags and singing these old musical songs and yeah. refusing to acknowledge that, you know, Bob Monkhouse is the big thing now because Monkhouse was very, very modern. Yeah, yeah. He was the Stuart Lee of the 1950s. With his very sort of fast patter yeah. style, and it's the same. I think here it's people who are already out of time. Yeah, yeah, but yes, either defi- yes, either time has left them behind, or in this case, this is just somebody that has kind of gone beyond being eccentric and is almost obsessed with you know what has become his identity. His identity is that he's somebody that is deliberately doesn't keep in step with modern society, and it's the, it's the refusal to conform. Hmm. And he talks about how he hates fences yeah. as, as a kind of ideological thing. And that, you know, a sign saying private property is just like a prison wall for him. Yes, and there's that whole... And I suppose that ties back into a whole area of American history which I'm very, very vague on. The, the thing of the, what is it, the ranchers versus the... You know, the cowboys versus the homesteaders. Where yes. They, they, there was one group that wanted to graze their cattle over great acres of prairie and then there was another group that wanted to fence it all off into little boxes and uh, and, and, and manage their own farms for themselves yeah but, but not something I know a lot about no me neither but it certainly it, it looks like a, a conflict that has evolved into into this state where the homesteaders have won yeah they have haven't they yes and the, the ranchers, or at least the ranchers' employees, are having to make do. Mm. And some have managed to evolve and turn into businesses or find other means of support. And some are left out in the cold. So Jack is heading across uh, the prairie, arrives in Duke City, New Mexico, 
average-sized town and uh, has come to visit his old friend Paul and his wife Jerry. Are they... I may have... I, I thought Paul was his brother, but did I get the wrong end of the stick on that? I'm pretty sure you did. I don't okay, think they're meant fine. to be brothers. Yeah, yeah. I mean, for starters, the two actors don't look remotely no. alike. Um, no, have I we, think... Have we said yet that Burns is played by Kirk Douglas? No, I don't think we have. And I don't think I've... Oh, no, of course I've seen another... I was just sitting there thinking... Have, have you seen, seen another Kirk Douglas film? Yeah, yeah, I've definitely seen... Because I was thinking about the, you know... I, I, Surely you've seen The Fury, directed by Brian De Palma. Uh, oh, no. Is oh. that the... Because it's the kind of film that you would watch. Is that the... I think I'm getting it mixed up with... It's the one with uh, John Cassavetes as a guy who's um, cultivating teenagers with psychic powers. And one of them is kidnapped and his father's played by Kirk Douglas. And Kirk Douglas goes hunting for him. No, and it's like a, it, Kirk Douglas went through a, a, a brief period in the late seventies of being in rip-offs of other horror movies. <laughs> so he's in a rip-off of Carrie. He's also in a rip-off of The Omen called Holocaust Two Thousand. Um, <laughs> it was that point where he realised maybe I'm getting a bit old for this yeah. now. Maybe I should be doing other kinds of characters. So then he did Saturn Three, and that was kind of the end point. <laughs> yes. For, and why not? You know, if you've got to go out on a film, then go out on Saturn 3. Well, he carried on. I mean, he's, he's still alive. He's 103. Seriously? Yep, Kurt Douglas is still around. Retired. Uh, very happily retired. Uh, wow. But, um, yep, still with us. I think he's he's fallen into that terrible category of people that I just assumed had died years ago. By the law of averages, yeah, yeah, yeah. that's perfectly reasonable, because he's over 100 years old. That's, I don't know what good for him. Yeah. It's, I mean, he had a quite a severe stroke a few years oh, ago, sure. but he seems to have recovered sufficiently. He hmm. subsequently appeared at the Oscars and, and uh, awarded Best Picture. Um, so I think under the circumstances, he's in he's in pretty good health. Yeah. yeah. Wow. No, yeah. I just as I say, I just I think I'd assign him into that the, that terrible category of people you just assume are dead. Hmm. We were talking earlier, listening about uh, Nicholas Rogue. Hmm who died yesterday, and I think a lot of people assumed that, yeah, he, well, he hasn't made a film in 12 years, and no one saw that, so clearly he must have died years ago. Yeah. No, he was still around, and he died aged 90. He didn't make his first film until he was into his 40s, so that's uh, oh, wow. quite a comforting uh, <laughs> yes, yeah. sign for late starters. Um, he arrives at the house and finds that Paul is in jail, mm. because he's been um, helping illegal immigrants across the border. Which is topical. Which is topical. And Jack has absolutely no problem with that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. These people want to come and find work. What's the problem with that? Oh, these fences everywhere. Isn't that awful? Yes, it's just used as another excuse for a, 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 an anti-fence rant, isn't it? Yes. Um, and I, I think at this point in the film, I, it had completely wrong-footed me. I'd already assumed this was a film about a cowboy in the Old West. And now here he is riding along roads and... Going to be, I just had no idea where this film was going at this point. Great. <laughs> um, he and Jerry, which I assume is short for Geraldine, mm. unless her parents were weird, um, they're very close. Very close. Yes. Yeah, and I think that might be one of the reasons why I assumed that you know he was his brother's oh. wife. I think I just that's that might be why I assumed there was a familial relationship that they just you know he. It seemed well. He says later on that um, he was sort of attracted to her, maybe in love with her, but he was glad that he didn't marry her and that Paul married her because she needs stability and because 
Burns is a loner and he, yes. he can't cope with having other people in his life and he would have ended up being cruel to her. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that was it. And I think, the, as you say, it's, a very, it's obviously a very close relationship and I think that's maybe what made me sort of project this family relationship onto the film. She, he does kiss her on the mouth at one point. Well, yeah, yeah, but it's the sixties. A lot of people were, <laughs> a lot of people were experimenting with that kind of thing. Okay. Actually, no, sixty-two. It had, according to Philip Larkin, sex hadn't been invented at that point, had it? Oh, what does he know about science? Um, I did notice that also that they use the the word wetbacks to refer to the um, the immigrants, which is actually quite an offensive term. <laughs> Again, you, it was the sixties. Yeah, um, it's it's odd how it's just tossed off. Yeah, yeah. Because using the N word, I think by that point, they, I mean, Douglas is, was well known as being a politically very liberal. I mean, he was employing people who'd been blacklisted by mm. um, the government. So for him to use a racial word, I mean, he's playing a character, obviously, but it feels out of step with the character because you see, he doesn't care where people are from; they want they want to work. Okay. Yeah, I suppose that's true. In, in a way, would a character like that even bother with... If you're not concerned about borders or lines or maps, would you care about where people are from? Yeah, I suppose it may not, just be not, that it's... Uh, not inherently. I mean, he might be interested. But, yeah, they're from south of the border. You know, Mexico, Guatemala, wherever. They, he wouldn't care. What, and we do, <laughs> we do later on have George Kennedy playing a Mexican. Really? Yeah, his character's called Guterres. Well, not necessarily Mexican, but Hispanic, obviously. I, okay. <laughs> yeah, it's it's weird casting. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, interesting. Uh, Jerry calls Burns out on his attitude to the world, on, on his old-fashionedness. Mm. So we do get that straight off the bat, that he's that he is out of step, yeah. and that he's defiantly out of step. Yes, it's become his... Well, it's, it's become how he defines... It's his self-image, isn't it? You know, yeah. his self-image is... The loner. I am. I'm keeping. I am me. I'm a custodian of the old ways of the the self reliance and all that kind of thing. That I mean, it's like people talk about it and ask, "Yes, you need guns to defend yourself from burglars and all this kind of thing." No, people were saying this was absurd nearly sixty years ago, and yeah. Kirk Douglas said it. <clears throat> yes, and he he looks like he's made out of a saddlebag. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Even then. Uh, meanwhile, a truck sets off. Yes, being driven by Archie Bunker. Yeah, Carol O'Connor in his yeah. first film. Oh, okay, yeah, that makes sense. Um, this is uh, several people's... Um, Bill Bixby appears very late on. Yes, as an uncredited un- helicopter un- pilot. As an uncredited helicopter pilot. And um, this is one of um, George Kennedy's first films as well. Mm. Yes, it is a, it's a nice film for kind of going, oh, isn't that... An- and Jerry Goldsmith's first feature film score. Okay, yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. There's a lot of people getting their start here. Mm. And that also makes me think um, about the choice to shoot in black and white. I suppose by 62 it would have been a choice, wouldn't it? Assuming it wasn't budgetary, because it's quite a small-scale film in a way, yeah. and they might have wanted to spend the money on things like helicopters, and yes. not, like, presumably multiple horses that keep falling off cliffs. I'm kind of not familiar enough with the, the history of Hollywood to know when sort of shooting in black and white became a sort of declaration of artistic principles or something. I suppose this was still the point when you could go to the cinema and, you know, you had as much chance of seeing a black and white film as one in colour. I think, te- was Technicolor still a bit of a gimmick at this point? Or I think, te- no, Technicolor had been around for quite a long time. Oh, God, yeah, it was Wizard of Oz, wasn't it? That was There were silent ago. films that were made in colour. Oh, OK. 
Um, Wizard, Wizard of Oz and Gone with the Wind were, and actually um, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs two years ago. Oh early. yes, yeah, yeah. But um, the last fully black and white film to win Best Picture until The Artist, by which point you know mm. it was 2011, was uh, The Apartment, which was 1960, I think. Okay. Schindler's List has a little bit of colour at the end. Yes, yeah. Um, and Doctor Strangelove was all black and white. That's true. That was a few years later, wasn't it? Was that 65? 64. Oh, okay. Actually 63, but it was delayed because um, it ends with... Um, it was supposed to end with a big pie fight. Oh, where yes. the president gets hit in the face by a pie and, and strange loves. Or someone says, oh, the president's been struck down in his prime. Oh, well, so, it was a bit too topical. And it was thought, thought to be a bit too topical because mm. it was supposed to be previewed on November 22nd, 1963. Oh, But that scene was cut anyway. Yeah. And then they decided to just put off the release of the film until the following year because it was felt to be inappropriate timing for that kind of satire. So by the early 60s, black and white is kind of phasing out mm. as a mainstream um, choice but it feels like it's a deliberate choice to make it look more old fashioned It caught it again it wrong footed me when I went to buy this film on uh, whatever streaming service it's available on these days because of course streaming services don't want to give the impression that oh you're about to buy a film in black and white because people won't so the, all the pictures are in colour right um, and so I just Assumed it was a colour film, um, but no, yeah, it started up black and white, and I, I've got no great objection to, uh, you know, no great objection to black and white films. But, Good, because uh, if you did, you'd be going through that fucking window. Right now. <laughs> and also, yeah, you know, and um, and I think that was partly just a thing of growing up in the seventies when black and white films were normal. It was just place. interchangeable. Yeah, exactly. You know, you would be sitting there, and you would, I think. It was a bit of a surprise to subsequently go back and find out the stuff I remembered watching on TV as a kid, usually the more antique stuff like Champion the Wonder Horse, was in black and white. And I just don't think I'd ever noticed as a kid. It never, never kind of occurred to me that there was a difference. Well, for me, it would have been Laurel and Hardy. Yeah, that's true. Um, and because, there's, because a lot of Laurel and Hardy is very much based in the social world and the... And the um, the, the post-depression circumstances of the 30s, it felt, oh yeah, this is from the past. Mm. And that's why it looks like that. But because it's there's lots of action and the character's interesting and all the, there's everything else going on, the fact that it looks old fades into the background. Yeah, it? like, yeah. It's like Dad's Army. Yes. It's of its time specifically, so it doesn't date. No, that's right. So whilst the truck's setting off with uh, a shipment of toilets, um, Jack hatches a plan to get himself locked up in prison, then help... Paul escape and then they can go on the lamb together yeah, away from the authorities because, because that's, that's what you do yeah, that's what men do isn't that's it? what you do in the west and the fact that Paul's got a wife and a kid well they can come on the run as well what's the big deal yeah exactly um, he leaves some money behind in case things go wrong and his scheme is to get locked up for public drunkenness so he goes to a bar buys a beer and a bottle of whiskey and starts merrily drinking away and then suddenly a one-armed man picks a fight with him for yes. no reason at all. That's a, yeah. The angriest looking man you've ever seen. To the extent where he was actually cast as the murderer in The Fugitive a couple of years later. Oh, it was. I, 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 it was when, we, when, when you suddenly started talking about a, a one-armed man, I was toying with the idea of making some weak joke linking it to The Fugitive. That was actually the it's one. It's the same actor, yeah. Oh, wow. Well, there is a... 
Yes, I don't want to use the word shortage, but there is a deficit of... You've got uh, nothing I don't want to use the word deficit either. You've got nothing against his right arm. <laughs> <laughs> no, but there, there, are, uh, there aren't as many disabled... Well, certainly no. then, there weren't many, uh, as many disabled actors as, as there might be now because we're a bit more accepting of I think sort of thing I, in, uh, in I, I think I just assumed, never really having seen The Fugitive, I think I always just assumed that it was played by a... A, a regular actor with an arm strapped up or something. But no, yeah, he's, no. Really, he's genuinely yeah, okay. a, a, a unidexter. Huh. But yes, he's furious. And yeah, he chucks a bottle of whiskey at... Um, he, throws but, a, he throws it at his leg and it smashes on his mm. leg. Wow, what's he made of? <laughs> and, and it's interesting that Burns just tries to talk him down and say, look, I don't really, I really don't want to have a fight with you. Yeah. Just, you know, calm down. Let's sit down and have a drink and we'll talk about it. Because he doesn't want to get arrested for fighting. He doesn't want no. to get the, the, the crap that kicked out of him. He just wants to just be a loud, noisy drunk and get on people's nerves. Well, it's in, in a weird sort of way as well, it reminds me of a bit from the book Three Men in a Boat where they turn up in a town somewhere and all the hotels in town are full and they have this slightly panic discussion about what's the lowest level of offence they can do where a policeman will be forced to lock them up for the night but will let them go in the morning and I think they come to the conclusion that if they run up behind a policeman and knock his hat off <laughs> that might just about do it I love Three Men in a Boat it's terrific isn't I can't it? believe that it was written like five years after Dickens died and yet it's the prototype for every comedy road movie mm. of the last 130 years it's, it's like it's like the hangover but with stiff collars. Yeah. I mean what I what I remember finding really interesting about it when I read it was that the great chunks of it are Victorian observation of comedy. It's just have you ever noticed the way that and then it goes off on a kind of all these crinolines that women are wearing yeah. today. Yeah, what's and, and some of the humour hasn't dated at all. No. It's amazing. And it's so funny. Yeah. It's one of the. It's a book I first picked up at school, and I've got a really strong memory of sitting in class. I just picked it up because I thought, "What the hell?" Yeah. You know? um, and we've been given quiet time for reading, probably because the teacher had a hangover. <laughs> and sitting there and just doing that thing of having to suppress laughter because I couldn't believe how funny this book I was reading. Yeah, yeah, it's a, a, a fantastic book. Well, that's a nice cheery recommendation yeah. to have in the middle of this this grim, downbeat film. Um, so he winds up, oh, and I noticed that there's a painting on the wall of the bar. Oh, that's right. Yeah, he toasts it, doesn't he? Of it's a, a, a campfire scene, but there's a ghost hovering over the campfire. Oh, is that what it is? Okay. And it's a, yes, it's a, it's the, the spirit of the uh, the old west. Almost, and that's if, if that's what he's toasting, then it's very much sort of an acknowledgement of his his kinship with yeah. his personal philosophy. Yeah. Stuff. yeah, but he gets his ass handed to him by a one-armed man who beats the living daylights yeah, yeah. out of him. Yes, and it's quite a and and then there's um because he's committed to only fighting with one hand, hasn't he? Yeah. And then all the other patrons of the bar get quite involved in this and start to get cross when he accidentally uses both hands or something. Yeah. But he's been, at one point he's being strangled, isn't he's he? He's being strangled. The, yeah, the man is strangling him with his loose sleeve. And what is this guy's problem? <laughs> we, no, we never find out. We never see yeah. him again. We're told in the next scene, oh, yeah, he's mean. Yeah. Yeah, he's a murderer. <laughs> He shot, he shot Richard Kimball's wife, and what do you want? Well, yeah. 
But uh, the cops arrive, having been called by the, the uh, bartender, and they drag him away. And the, <laughs> it turns out the cops are planning to let him go. Mm. And the grounds, well, yeah, he didn't start the fight. He was defending himself. He didn't do any more than look at, protect himself. He hasn't really done anything wrong. Yeah, and he's not that drunk anyway. Yeah. yeah. And so, yes, there's a, and so there's a nice little scene where he has to escalate the charge. Yes. Yeah. And then he starts a fight with the cops. But the way that shot is interesting because we hear the fight going on, but mm. we, the camera's focused on the desk sergeant who just starts filling out all the forms and going through the stuff in Burns's pockets and noting down everything. I suppose, yeah, I suppose maybe it's... Well, it's just a, it's just a good joke, isn't it? It doesn't need to be anything more sophisticated than that. And, and coming so quickly after another... You don't need to see another fight that quickly. No. You? But also it's kind of the a subversion of the expectation from Westerns. Mm. We're not seeing the fist fight. We're seeing the administrative procedure that results from the fist fight. Yeah. Because now the world is all very organised with little forms to fill out. And I suppose as well, you could it, it could also be part of the uh, the agenda of the film of, yes, the world is changing and things. And yeah, you know, you don't solve things by having a fist fight. If you, you have a fist fight, and yes, and now there's film, forms to be filled in and signed in triplicate and yeah. filed. Yeah. So, he gets thrown in uh, lockup. Oh no, hang on, we've missed a bit. Have we? Oh yes, the sheriff. Oh, Walter Matter. Well, sheriff Walter Matter, Moray Johnson. Again, he's a subversion of the the character of the mm. the tough lawman. He's a sensible, mild mannered, pretty authoritative, but generally easygoing lawman who never really has to deal with anything in particular, and who watches a dog pee against a fire hydrant out yeah. of his office window. And that's pretty much his daily routine, isn't it? Yeah. He's just watching the dog's daily routine. Or making snarky remarks to his deputy, who has a particularly idiosyncratic way of speaking. And I, I, you're going to have to indulge my nerdy side here briefly, but I'm watching the film, and I looked at that guy and went, who's that? Yep. And it's the guy, it's Nils Barris from The Trouble with Troubles. He's the guy that owns the grain that the Klingons are trying to poison. He's, he's one of those actors who has been in everything. Yes, basically. And um, it's always a supporting role. Mm. But he's saying, oh yeah, I know that guy. I, I don't think I even recognised him from that. I recognised him from something else. Yeah, but it's fascinating. And then, uh, yes, you go on and look at his IMDb page and it's... It's, it's full. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's had a very, very full career. I think he might... He was certainly working up until relatively recently, I think. Um, but I could be wrong about. I mean, the trouble is these days, of course, I sort of class anything that happened in nineteen nineties as relatively recently. Yeah. So. Yeah, like that recent hit show, Sequest DSV. That's right. And yeah. when's that coming out on Blu-ray? Blue like the water. Hmm. Yeah, just a fun diversion there. Um, Burns is put into the general population, and they've got newspapers to read in there. Someone pointed out. I read somewhere that they don't have a toilet. I suppose no, they don't, do they? I, su- I mean, that, I think that's just a film thing that they can't. They're not comfortable actually showing a toilet because that suggests no. there are people going to have a poo later. Yes. It's interesting, isn't it? It kind of you wouldn't notice. I, I hadn't clocked it until you mentioned it, but it is part of that vague prissiness that you get where that where films and TV did just shy away from anything biological. In the yeah. same way, I think, was it the Dick Van Dyke show where... They couldn't say pregnant. They weren't allowed to... Dick Van Dyke and his wife didn't sleep in the same bed in the Dick Van Dyke show, so God knows how they had kids. Um, 
And for some reason, you should join the circus with a trick like that. <laughs> well, yeah, that's true. One leg, uh, that was always the joke. Was if you, I think if you if you showed two characters, a male and a female characters sitting on the same bed or laying on the same bed, one of them had to keep one leg on the floor at all times yeah. because that was how you guaranteed against naughtiness. For some reason, that's reminded me also of going back to when we talked about. Uh, you might have to cut this now because I've just forgotten the name of the film. The George Lucas film that wasn't Star Wars. THX one one three eight. That's the one. Yeah. And there's a whole sequence in that where I remember we talked about the fact that they have a toilet in that film and there's no door on the toilet. And I seem to remember going on for ages about the fact that this showed how the characters didn't have any privacy and they lived in this sci-fi dystopia, yada, yada, yada. Completely omitting the fact that it may just have been that George Lucas was showing off and going, look, I can show a toilet in my films. <laughs> <laughs> it's the 70s and this is the new Hollywood. There is an interesting connection because the first film to show a toilet flushing in, I think certainly in mainstream Hollywood, I don't know about generally, was Psycho. Oh, but okay. it's not, um, it's not human poo, or or wee wee that's being flushed away. God it's it's um, torn up paper evidence. No. Um, and Martin Balsam is in Psycho, and he's also in Catch Twenty Two, which is the first film to show someone sitting on a toilet using it. And it's Martin Balsam again. That was maybe that was his big thing. He had a big page in whatever the American equivalent of Spotlight is. Yeah, <laughs> can act with or without toilet. Um, and we have there's another Western stereotype or archetype rather in the jail, and that's the preacher. Yes. Yeah. Who's always worked his whole life to to fight against temptation. Uh, so, well, what are you doing in here, preachers? Oh. Afraid it was a woman. I thought you said you fought against temptation. Yeah, well, maybe I didn't fight that hard. Yeah. <laughs> okay, it's 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 pushing these archetypes to their, to their end point. So yeah. you've got the the cow hand who refuses to acknowledge the real world. The sheriff who, now that law and order's come, he's just kind of got nothing really to do. And you've got the preacher who, for all his philandering, well, now he's in jail. He's just been locked up. Yeah. And he seems harmless enough, but well, we don't know what he got up to. And we uh, meet Paul, and he's he's a kind of a guy. He's just yeah. like a he's just like a guy, played by Michael Caine, but not that one. Yeah, I was gonna say, I think he was played by Michael Caine. No, exactly. <laughs> no, I, I, I could the only reason because I, I kind of I looked him up on it's with a K, I think. Ah, right. Um, and he doesn't seem to have done very much else. Well, Paul is kind of a a bit of a non-entity. Mm. He's. More of a cipher, I think, in the story. He's he's there because he needs to be there, and then later in the movie, he ceases to have any relevance to it at yeah. all. Yeah. But he's kind of the reason why he's a MacGuffin. He's a human he MacGuffin. Is, isn't he, he's a way, justification yeah. for the story, but his actual nature and personality are totally irrelevant. Mm. Um, but he he's pleased to see Jack, and they have a little reunion. And uh, unfortunately, there's uh, also a very mean, nasty guard. In sort of what feels like yet another sort of cliche of, not West, but prison films, yes, there has to be a sadistic prison guard, doesn't mm. it? Except, of course, he's played by the guy from the airport, airport, airport movies. movies yeah. Well, he's also, uh, he plays the kind of, pri- I think it's the prison daddy type character mm. again, Cool Hand Luke. Oh. Which I think is only a year later. And that was the one he won an Oscar for. Oh, okay. Because it's George Kennedy. Uh, here playing a Hispanic man, yes, and I think he's got some like, some things on his eyes. I, I think 
He certainly had his skin darkened. It's weird. They could, could, have, could have just cast a Hispanic actor. Yeah, or not made him Hispanic at all. But, yeah. Uh... Well, they, well, they probably wanted to give... After referring to wetbacks earlier, yeah, they I probably wanted to sort of have a bit more... So let's have a... Let's have a, 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 a something more positive yeah. role by casting a white actor. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, it, it's well, it's well meaning. But, but and overnight, uh, Jack and Paul share their cell with some Hispanic fellows, and they all seem really nice. Yeah, and they help help them escape. <laughs> yes, because uh, Jack had smuggled in two saw files yeah, in his boot, which obviously haven't been searched so that they can cut their way out of the cell and, and escape in the night. And that's quite a fun sequence. It's the enthusiasm that the other prisoners in the cell sort of get to the idea, not so much for some of them that they're going to take part in the jailbreak, but that there's something interesting. Yes, yeah, so, wow, this is exciting yeah. and fun, and yeah, you're getting one over on the man. Yes. Because that's how Jack perceives it, that he's getting one over on the system. Yeah, yeah, and it's not even... And, and there's no... There's no worry about consequences or the fact that he has, as you say, he's 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 basically he's he's over the course of twenty four hours he's escalated an overnight charge for public drunkenness into was it a, a year, year in jail for assaulting a police officer into five years for um, escaping, escaping. Prison, and yeah. you kind of you get the impression he might have done all this before he certainly seems very accomplished at escaping from prison. So. Well, he. Uh, we find out more about his war record later mm. on. That, oh, that's right. He escapes. That he that he was imprisoned in a military stockade and escaped like a one man A team, um, and that he'd served in the Korean War. Yeah. But um, he says to the guard at one point, the guard being very sort of angry and antagonistic, says, "No, one of these days you're going to have your best suit on with your belly to the sun, and nowhere to go but hell." Hmm. It's an. That's a very old west thing to say. Yeah. One of these days you're going to die. Yeah, and and it's not even phrased as a threat. Just like, just, just calm down, man. And then, of course, evil George Kennedy calls him out of the cell. You've got a telephone call, and takes him off to his office, beats the crap out of him, knocks one of his teeth out. Yeah, and then sends him back to the cell again, just for no reason. Because just that's because the kind can... of guy he is. Do you think perhaps that Burns prefigures hippies in some way? That he's sort of anti-establishment. He's anti the man. In this way, I guess possible. But it's kind of that weird kind of thing where you go all the way round till you get back where you started. Yeah. But there's sort of this weird connection between because there's new not, age hippies and, and old fashioned cowboys. There's this argument for saying that that sort of cowboys are kind of if you wanted to summon up an image of America at its most sort of traditional and conservative, you would go for a cowboy. So yes, the idea that yeah that. As you say, it goes full circle, and suddenly you've got this cowboy that's just espousing the same, effectively the same values. Yeah, possibly. That kind of early sixties period is not one because you had beat you had beatniks by by now, didn't yeah. you? I think, but they yeah. were mainly in urban urban areas. I think. Yeah, yeah. But I suppose yes, possibly you could argue that he's he's a sort of pro- a proto hippie. Although he'd probably, be, I don't know if he'd be offended by that description or not. I don't think he'd care. Well, I would. I would imagine that the differences are along the lines of beatniks being a cultural movement, mm. and the hippie, in this sense, is a bit more political. Yes. And he's generally uninterested in culture, but yeah. his but his <clears throat> philosophy is definitely a political one. 
Yeah. I've got another note from my mother. Just a perfectly normal thing for Adam yeah, to say. Yeah. The, selfless, the selflessness of the cowboy going to jail to help his friend bring into the past when you could break out of jail and disappear. So it's that, yeah, you could just break out of jail and, and flee and no one would be able to come after you mm. because you'd just go off without a trace. But no, we've got like police and, and helicopters now. Well, and again, and that's where you kind of get into that area of, of him being a man out of time because he's almost got it fixed in his head that yes, all he needs to do is get the hell out of Dodge and nobody will ever be able to track him down. And that's not how the even even in even in the sixties, that's not how the world worked. Um, I don't know. You know, I don't think he, he wouldn't. I don't think Jack would see it as a particularly selfless thing to do. It's just to, to him, it's almost like the, just a common sense solution. Oh, my mate's in prison, therefore he needs to get out. Mm. And as I say, and the fact that that then means if everything had gone according to plan, that him and Paul and his wife and Paul's kid will just, what, spend the next ten years wandering through American scrubland? Yeah. There's no forward... I don't even want to say there's no forward planning. There's there's almost a complete... Not even inability to think things. There are no consequences. It's just do stuff and, well, whatever happens tomorrow happens tomorrow. Hmm. But even so, he, the, the way that... Since he knew that he would be beaten up, he had experienced this before. Mm. Did he realise he would be hunted with such determination? So he kind of... He, he picks fights, he gets beaten up, he kind of acknowledges all of this as though it's... He's expecting it. I so he is putting himself through the ringer a bit yeah. for the sake of his friend, even though he's not given any thought to how this plan might actually work. Yeah, I mean, there's also the... Um... I suppose you could argue that that, that in, in that sense of him being a man out of time, there's almost no... He never makes a reference to going through this before. You know, he has no past and he has no future. He just... God, I'm starting to sound so poncy. He lives in this eternal present, you know. But he does. Yeah. Uh, but this, uh, this present has been sealed in amber since before he was born. Yes, the ironic thing is it's not even the... It's, it's, it's not, not his 1962 present, present. yeah. Um, as they're about to flee, Paul decides that he can't go, and he tells Jack this because he wants to pay off his debt because he has broken the law mm. and he knowingly broke the law, and that means taking responsibility for what he's done, which includes settling down and making sure that his family's looked after. Yes. And Jack takes this well, I think, to his credit. He takes it as proof that Paul's all grown up in a weird sort of way, Yeah. He said, well, that's your decision. I'm not going to argue with you. And I'm not going to make you do anything that you don't want to do. But he still escapes anyway, because obviously he's going to. And it doesn't seem seem to be a terribly secure jail, does it? Because you kind of go out the window and you're just on the street. Well, they are in a quite a like the third or fifth. Oh third yeah, or fourth yeah, floor. yeah, yeah. It's not. And I mean, it's not massively easy to get out. Having sawn through the bar, they then have to pull the the yeah the the, the lattice the metal latticing from, away from the window, and they've got a bed sheet rope to climb down, and then Jack just kind of gets to the ground and walks off. Uh, it's mentioned that Jack has nothing to go back to, as well. 
that Paul has a, has a family, and that yeah. as, as you say, there is the whole problem of what, is his whole family going to go on the run? Jack has nothing. Yeah, and that's and he, and and Jack actually uses that as the argument as to why he couldn't survive in prison because he has nothing to wait for. Yeah, and it's nothing but fences. Yeah, he gets back to Jerry's, and she's furious about his his antics. Yeah. But not necessarily surprised. In... No, and she's been looking after the horse and making sure that the yeah. the ho- whiskey the horse is fed and watered. But she, I think she loves Jack in in a, in a way, not in, not necessarily erotic, but certainly yeah. in a in a, a in a in a close way. Well, and they have, and they do have that conversation where Jack sort of talks about the fact that he was madly in love with her, and she sort of she does make some comment along the lines of, "Well, why didn't you say something?" And because be, being a loner is being a cripple, you can't have space in your life for other people, as he says here. Yeah. And there's, even though she's angry, she she packs him food. Oh yeah. For his yeah. for his tricks, she's, she's she's concerned about his welfare, but she still thinks that he's being stupid. Yeah. And and they do have an emotional goodbye as well. Meanwhile, as dawn comes up. And Jack's riding off towards the the mountains, heading south. Um, a truck driver wakes up at a level crossing. Yeah, and yeah, that's something that's going on. Structurally, this looks incredibly clumsy, because we know that at some point this truck is going to have some kind of relevance yeah. to the story. But it's yeah, we'll cut away and we'll just have a scene of a man driving a truck, and then we'll go back to whatever it is that Jack's doing. It's, it's not integrated in any way with no. anything else that's happening until right at the end. It's very odd because it did stick at this point in the film. It did stick out like a sore thumb. It's like, well, what's Carol O'Connor doing yeah. apart from driving to this town? You know, what what's his? And I think you go, well, okay, fine. Jack's going to go on the run. Is he going to help Jack escape? Is there going? You know, because as you say nothing happens. It's obviously part of the story. It's just completely unclear as to what. There's, it's it's the one big weird flaw of the movie. You could cut all those scenes out, and it would make absolutely no difference, because. But yeah, you know, possibly. Let's jump forward to the end. Um, that as they're crossing the road, right at the end of the movie, in the pouring rain, the truck hits Jack and the horse, and the horse dies. Actually, the horse doesn't die. The horse is killed. Mm. Uh, is given a the mercy kill, um, and Jack is taken away to hospital. We don't need to know the background of the truck driver. We all we need to know is that he was hit by a truck. The truck driver is appalled by what's happened, and he's really upset. Maybe it's because this man is hurt. Maybe it's because he thinks he'll be held responsible. We don't need to know where he set off from. What the lotus that he's carrying, where he was sleeping the night before. None of those scenes have any relevance to anything else. I suppose so. I just... Because in some ways it's the Chekhov's gun thing, isn't it? Is if you, if you run a horse over with a truck in the third act, you make sure that the truck is mentioned in... But, but, we, but we've already seen early on... That the horse with, is scared the, the, of The traffic. whiskey gets spooked trying to cross the road. And that's in broad daylight in good weather. Mm. And at the end of the movie... It's in really bad weather at night. So it makes sense that to reference back to that, that whiskey will panic and that there'll be an accident. 
we don't really need to know any more than that. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, obviously, the sequence where Jack's on the run is so tense that I kind of forgot about Carol O'Connor's character anyway. And that there's a point when it suddenly cuts back to him driving the truck. And I just remember having this kind of sinking feeling in my stomach and going, oh God, that's right, this character's in this film. And I suppose you wouldn't have that moment if you hadn't sat there earlier and gone, why is this character in this film? Mm. And in, there's, in some ways this feels like the, the, the most terrible and saddest episode of Seinfeld ever as the two stories <laughs> <laughs> come together at the last minute. You know, um, but I don't know. I wonder... Yes, you could cut it out. I don't... This might be one of those occasions when it wouldn't be... The ending still wouldn't come out of nowhere. I just wonder if it, it would be less effective. You wouldn't have that moment where you suddenly go, oh, that's right, there's a guy and he's driving a dirty grey truck. Uh, so, and suddenly you understand why his storyline is there. Would you say perhaps that the truck is symbolic of fate? It, it does. Is, it's, it's the modern world that finally comes from, from far away. It's this unstoppable force mm. that eventually crushes Jack. Yeah. I think I don't know if it does make it more devastating in a way that that this that, that that his the thing that's going to end his dreams of escape has been travelling since the start of the film and we don't understand that it's there and in particular its destination is the town where the movie mm. sits now he's not passing through the town he's arriving there he's actually going there isn't he yeah I don't know so it, it that maybe maybe that then that this this is a thing coming from far away and it's going to reach him yeah like. The comet, like the the asteroid coming from deep space to, to land on you. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I, normally, I'd agree, but I'm not sure. I'm not sure if it isn't more effective. I just remember sitting there watching the film, and and I can't remember if I think it might. There might be a shot after Jack's successfully escaped, and then suddenly it cuts back to Carol O'Connor, and I just remember having this horrible sinking feeling in my stomach. Because I knew that the longer this film went on after Jack had escaped, the more unlikely it mm. was that he had, was actually going to get away successfully. And then having that double moment of going, oh, wait a minute, and he's driving a truck, and... Whiskey gets spooked in traffic. Yeah. Mm. And suddenly, it's that point, there's an episode of um, Friends, isn't there, where it turns out that Phoebe's never seen the end of Old Yeller. Yeah. Because her mum always turns the film off at a specific point and says that that's the end of the film and that the film has a happy ending and that's kind of how I feel is that the longer the film went on past the ending the more anxious I was getting right well a search starts led by the sheriff who's very low energy but they're all so frighteningly efficient, aren't they? Because the guy gets a report on the radio. Oh, yeah, I went, like you said, I went to the woman's house and I found some hoof prints and I followed the hoof prints and I found a cut in a fence and the cut wasn't. And it's just this rattling off of all the things that yeah. this guy's done. It's just uh, these. They're modern police officers. Yeah. <laughs> they're not, they're not like they're local not... rubes co opted by the, by the marshal. Yeah. These are professionals. Yeah. So. Johnson can afford to be kind of a, a little bit more laid back. And I get the impression from his attitude that he doesn't have the kind of grudging anger 
that's oh he's escaped from jail I've got to hunt this guy down and get him no, no. I've got to capture this guy because it's my job he's escaped yeah. from jail I catch people who do that yeah it's not like George Kennedy's character who is just apparently almost as angry as the one armed man for some yeah. reason no it's just John, he's, he's a civil servant doing yeah. his job and, and he'll do it as best he can but he's not massively invested in it emotionally and to the point later on in the chase where it becomes clear that he there's actually a chunk of him that hopes that the guy gets you know he's put he he feels that 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 Jack has put so much effort into escaping that he deserves to escape almost I think he makes some comment at one point like good on you or something like that yeah so from this point on the the tenor of the story shifts and the and from here on it's a fugitive story ironically mm. given the the one armed man um of the police and the authorities pursuing Jack as he tries to escape to Mexico. Um, but it, as I say, it feels like a manhunt in name only. They have to, they have to catch him because they kind of have to. They can't like, they can't not pursue someone who's escaped from prison. No, no, that's true. I mean, but he's not, he's not dangerous. He's not. He hasn't committed some terrible crime that he has to be punished for. He started a fight with some cops and then yeah. escaped from jail. Yeah, and it's more that it's the principle of the thing. As you say, yeah. it's the principle it's, thing, isn't it? It's, yeah, yeah, you can't do you that. You can't not let him go. Hang on. There's a lot of double negatives you in that can't. sentence. <laughs> or whatever it is they're yeah, doing, yeah. they have to do. Yeah. So he heads up into the mountains. Um, he sees cars in the distance heading towards him. There's a mountain lion. Yes, which we'll remember yeah. from the second season of 24. Oh, God, that's right, yes. yeah, And also... Um... And the deputy gets a catchphrase. Does he? Yes, I suppose he Ju- does. Judas Priest. Oh, that's right. Yes, that suddenly comes because before that, his his catchphrase has been to say a particular word and then say the word right afterwards. Because this is the thing that annoys Walter Matthau's character. Matthau, right? Yeah, and, and then, it drives him up the wall. Yes. <laughs> but then, yes, yes, it's suddenly it's Judas Priest, and I'd never. Never come across that as an exp- as a kind of an exclamation before, but I suppose the band Judas Priest must have got it from somewhere. Well, it's a way of swearing without swearing, mm. and I suppose for if the character is a churchgoer, it's a way of yes, in, in, a way of, sort of exclaiming without invoking anything too uh, um, contentious. And they call in air support. Yeah, well, do they, or, or is it just that the the air force has been listening in on the radio and hears that there's a manhunt going on and, and they've got a helicopter in the area or something. I think, it's, I think it's half and half because I've got written down calls and air support here and I wouldn't have got that out of nowhere. Yeah, maybe. But it's, I mean, it was again, it makes sense. And, and again, it just all adds to the sinking feeling. Because by this, this was the point when I really got engaged with the film. The, the rest of it, it had been very nice and very amiable and, you know, there's this man and he's just kind of ambling around and having adventures. But once there was a very definite drive to the story that no yeah. now he's going up this mountain and if he can get up this mountain all the way to the top he is free this is where I really got invested in the film when it takes on more of a shape and particularly it becomes not necessarily more of a genre piece but it falls into a recognisable pattern mm. yes because before that as you say it's kind of yeah it's about a cowboy but it's modern day and it's, and it's all a bit sort of lots of things but not cohering yeah. fully but you need all of that set up for this to yes. happen and the sheriff finds his campfire and tracks. And he it looks like he's a properly skilled cop, mm. as I say, the professionals. But the deputies, he finds, are just sitting in the shade of their jeep, swigging from Coke bottles. And 
They really don't look very professional there, do they? Well, no, but there's there's been a, a, a gag earlier in the film, isn't there, where, where the sheriff comes in and there's somebody lounging around on a chair or something yeah. and, and asking if he can go and get some food. or And, and that's probably one of the deputies. I, I can't actually remember now. Um, but, yeah, and so, they, so you've got them and they're coming up the hill and the Air Force is... There. <laughs> yeah, but yes. Um, as you say, they've been listening in, and the tr- and the general offers his troops and his um, resources as an exercise for his men. Mm. So it it almost feels insulting, like they're saying, "Oh, you you can you can treat this man as as like target practice." Yeah, effectively. yeah. It's just a game to them. It's just, oh, this is a good thing to. Yeah, let's get involved in this. And it feels, yeah, it feels insulting to Jack's character because. Well, as I say, by this point, I just wanted him to escape. Mm. Um, and Whiskey is, frankly, he's, you know, I, I was getting increasingly annoyed with the horse because the horse is very unreliable. It panics at the wrong time or it makes noises when it needs to be quiet or... She spooks really yeah, easily. Yeah. And there's the bit later on where Jack is preparing to leave her behind. Yes. And he looks back and the horse is just looking at him with big poppy dog eyes. Yeah. You're not leaving me, are you? Ooh. I think, yeah, that would be that, that would be a different film if it was Mr. Ed, the motion picture. <laughs> he also feeds uh, a pine cone to a chipmunk. That's right, yes. Yeah, he just p- picks up a pine, because he's having a bit of a think, isn't he? Because yeah. by this point, I don't know if, as I say, there's no sense of any forward planning. He's already just decided that, that that's the way he's going to go, and if he can get to the top of the mountain, he's in he's in the clear. And I think he gradually realises that the net is tightening around him, that the, 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 the sheriff has already planned ahead and that there were men on the top of the hill because yeah. he sees the sunglasses, look, uh, sees the, the glint of the, the sun off um, binoculars and things. And... Obviously, there's this wretched helicopter buzzing around um, and spooking his horse. Um, and he starts shooting at the helicopter. Yes, which is... And again, but not done with any he's just, malice. He's just... He's not going for the people and he's not trying to make it crash. He just wants to bring it gently down. Mm. And so he shoots out the tail rotor. Yeah. And yeah. again, I suppose, having been... Because by this point we've had his army record, haven't we? And he's been he's obviously served in Korea. Yeah. And yeah, you know, I remember all the helicopters in MASH, so I think they were quite <laughs> well, quite yeah. quite new pieces of kit at the time. But uh But so uh, he's able to shoot it down and it comes to a soft landing. Yeah. And when the sheriff talks over the radio it's established that the, the the, the pilot and his co-pilot are not dead. No, they're going they're to be fine. The major, the, the, the general is, is pitching a fit because he knows how expensive helicopters are. Exactly. It's, it's a very much a modern thing. No, he's not worried about the lives of his men. And there's an interesting, there's a bit as well, and, and again, I, this was the point when I started to, I kind of went up and down in terms of thinking he's going to get away, he's not going to get away. He's going, and this was the point when the chase kind of stops because everybody gets distracted by the helicopter crash and all the police come and look at it and the army is suddenly is out so the air force is suddenly out of the chase and it's that point you're thinking okay this is your chance right go for it go for the rim (laughs) um 
But at that very moment, who should turn up but Guterres, who's so just suddenly appears. He kind of abseils down the side of the mountain, doesn't he? Um, and he, he closes in on the little camp when suddenly he feels the barrel of uh, Jack's rifle in the back of his head. And it's a very satisfying moment because, well, it's exactly... He's, he's been the nasty, sadistic prison officer, so what you want is a scene where the nasty, sadistic prison officer is put in his place. And I wasn't sure whether his character was going to come back because... Up to this point, the, the the structure of the film had been so sort of rambling and it had been isolated little scenes in the same way that the one-armed guy from the the bar doesn't come back because he's a character that's in that scene only. He's yeah. not even arrest. He's not even taken to the same place when he's a, when they're arrested. No. Um, I just kind of thought that George Kennedy's character, maybe he won't come back. Maybe I'll just have to imagine him there kind of fuming and waving his fist out the window and going, oh, get you, butler, or whatever. <laughs> but no, he's back. And yes, and you get the, and you get the nice moment of revenge and Jack leaves his tooth, doesn't he? Yeah, he, leaves his t- he, he, he clubs him to the ground so he's unconscious, hog ties him, and then just leaves the tooth he knocked out. Yeah. On his uh, on his shirt as a kind of taunting thing. Yeah. He... and he's he tries to go off on his own, but the horse it looks too sad. Yes. So they scramble up the remaining loose rocks to the top, and then the horse becomes a bloody liability again because then it refuses to go up the scree slope or something. Yeah, isn't it? And at this point, I was getting flashbacks to when I was attempting to play Red Dead Redemption, <laughs> and I was <laughs> repeatedly riding my horses into trees and things because apparently I can't steer. Dear, I mean, you'd last one day in Westworld. <laughs> I got so far. I've been killed by a cougar. I've been killed by a bear. Uh, I've and yeah, and oh, my horse kicked me in the head and killed me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a very good cowboy. Oh my god! I didn't even know you could do that in the game. <laughs> Neither did I. I couldn't believe it. I did. But I learned a valuable lesson about not walking behind horses. Well, exactly. It's like you don't walk behind a car when it's got its reversing lights on. Yeah. Honestly. Towny. So they make it to the top of the slope. Yeah. They actually make it. And then there's like men off to the left and there's men off to the right and there's people coming from behind. And, and Jack just gets gets on Whiskey's back and right off and it's just a gentle slope down the back through a forest to freedom and the they're, end. they're free and clear that's it and the film finishes and that's, <laughs> and that's the bit where Phoebe stopped watching yeah and um, <laughs> and then and, and and the sheriff just turns to the deputy and says so do you want to get a steak yeah okay and they just go off right, yeah. there's nothing we can do now and then it I can't remember at this point if it it cuts back to him in the forest and it turns out he's taken a bullet in the leg. Yeah. And that's when you go, uh, this isn't good. And and, then, and this is the point where I, I did kind of go, well, this isn't good. A, this isn't good. And B, why haven't the words the end come up on screen in big reassuring letters? Um, but he puts a tourniquet on and he kind of puts his gun stop. Yeah. And he rides off and it's okay. And the end... And then it cuts back to the sheriff and the deputy in the car, and it's like, why isn't this film finishing? <laughs> There's still a bit to go. Yeah. Night falls, and the weather takes a very bad turn. And here comes Carol O'Connor. Here comes Carol O'Connor. And Burns gets to the bottom of the slope, and 
there's another road. But beyond the road, is the border to Mexico is within sight. You can see it from there. He's just got to get over that, over that road. But Carol O'Connor's toilet truck is approaching and Whiskey gets spooked. And there's a swerve and Whiskey gets hit, falls to the side of the road and Jack falls as well. And this sequence is horrible. Yeah. The sequence of Jack lying on his back, cradled. It's a, an astonishing piece of acting from... Um, Kirk Douglas. From Kirk Douglas. <laughs> Sorry, yeah, I panicked. I was about to call him Kirk Lancaster. That's <laughs> not even a real person. Um, and because all through the... You suddenly realise that all through the film, Kirk Douglas has been this kind of relaxed, easygoing, quite charming person. And then... He's lying on his back and he's got this look of terror and confusion. I'm not even sure he understands what's... There's a whole separate debate to be had about how much damage the truck has done to him. Um, But he just looks... He's just terrified. And it's absolutely heartbreaking. Yeah. It's the moment where he knows he's been defeated. Because at every point he's been confident because he knew that he could make it. And he could have made it the whole way yeah. easily but this is the moment where suddenly no defeat yeah. from the jaws that's of victory that's not how stories work yeah that's not well that's how stories work that's not how real life yeah. works that's not the way the west works anymore you can't just make it to the border and make a run for it it's not that simple and the police happen to arrive as people are surrounding yeah. the the scene of the accident want to see you know, rubbernecking or trying to see if every, what's happened if anything if everything's okay and Jack comes face to face with the sheriff for the first time yeah and what happens next my mother and I interpreted in two different ways okay the deputy asks the sheriff is this him mm. is this the man we've been chasing and the sheriff says I don't know the way I read it is that the sheriff genuinely doesn't know because he never saw mm. Jack's face. He cannot positively identify him. He actually has a line, doesn't he, about I never saw him close up. Or no, they like only ever saw him at a distance. So because he can't positively identify him, he's, not, he's prepared to say, I don't know. The way my mother read it is he knows exactly that this is the man he's been chasing this whole time. But after everything he's been through, and after, as you say, being sort of quite impressed by Byrne's tenacity, and seeing where he is now, he can't bring himself to say, yes, arrest Mm. him, drag him back to jail. Yeah, I don't know. And I don't know which which one I lean towards, to be honest. Um, The... And it's hard to... It's really hard to express just how mean this ending is. I've seen it described elsewhere as sadistic, and that might not be a bad word to use, to be honest. It's... But it's not... It's pessimistic. Yeah. I don't think it's cruel. I think it's saying that if this this story were real, this is how it would end. He Mm. He wouldn't get to freedom. He'd wind up being trapped in the system that he's tried to escape. He's going to go to hospital with... God knows what injuries. Mm. Because and he's the, going to have to make a life for himself. Because all the way that. through the sequence, uh, 
he's lying on the ground. He's kind of shivering, but he's not. He, I don't. He has no more dialogue, does he? No, he doesn't speak for the rest of the. It's just, it's just only a few minutes. Yeah, but it felt like longer. Yeah, because it's it's such a, a powerful, impactful scene. But you know, and yes, and, and I keep coming back to the thing that he's he's just lying there and he's shivering and he's got this look of terror and confusion on his face, and it could be one or, one or other. I mean, the, the, the terrible thing is that, that you know, Walter Matthau's character is a professional. I, I suspect that if he could positively ID him, there wouldn't be anything personal in it. It would just be, oh, you played the game, it didn't work out, off you go to prison. But yes, you could read it either way, and, and, and effectively the film stops before you get to the point where you find out what's going to happen. And yeah. at that point given the way that reality has just bludgeoned this nice romantic tale of the Old West over the head, you can construct any number of, as I say, any number of incredibly depressing endings. Uh, I think I've turned the film off and had sort of convinced myself that that Jack is paralysed. Because there's something about the way he's lying and the way he's twitching after the accident. I could well believe that, that, and that... This man that doesn't recognise borders and boundaries is going to spend the rest of his life in a wheelchair if he's lucky. If he's unlucky, it's a hospital bed. But that's yeah. that was my immediate reaction. I think that's that's possibly too cruel. In it. Yeah. My assumption is that he's probably broken some bones, but nothing. Yeah, hopefully. Nothing um, um, life limiting. Yeah, maybe it's just that he's just stunned and can't quite believe that he's got that close to victory. Yeah. And that he should never have relied on whiskey in the first place. Although whiskey to be fair, whiskey didn't deserve Whiskey wine. whiskey did everything that you would want a horse to do, but the animal is trying to be forced into conforming to a world that no longer exists. The horse shouldn't be expected to have to cross busy roads no. or or even climb those steep slopes. I wonder as well if there's an element of of criticism of Jack in this as well, in that because he doesn't pay any great attention to the modern world, he hasn't bothered trying to get whiskey used to it. Well, I think he mentions that he's actually only had whiskey for a short yeah, actually, time. Yeah, it's a quite a new horse, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. So, but even then, I mean, his her sorry previous owner should mm. I mean well it depends entirely on what I kind of was looking I mean if, if if it was a ranch horse for herding cattle there'd be no need to, to get her used to traffic yeah. or anything like that because it'd be out in the middle of nowhere yeah I kind of got the I almost got the impression that that but I don't think this would have worked in 1960, that this was one of those wild horses that roams America <laughs> and that, that you know that, that Jack had just kind of broken it and uh, and and tamed the horse himself but I think even 1962 you'd be hard to to find a wild horse wandering around yes um but yeah there's because there's a whole sequence where the helicopter's swooping around isn't it and they're hiding under some trees and the, the whiskey keeps being spooked by the helicopter mm. and he's backing towards the ledge at one point with quite a steep drop yes um and that's, a, again, a really tense sequence because, of course, you're sitting there going, you stupid horse, if you can just keep your head but, down. But it's only a horse. Horses, horses are very nervous and they're not very clever. You're heading towards five years in horse prison. Just <laughs> keep your head down. He's jockeying for position. Mm. That doesn't make any sense. No. One thing I notice is that um, the crowd that accumulates around Jack as the accident, those people are stopping in their cars and trying to offer help. Yes. 
And it's the opposite of the whole self-reliance thing. There's people everywhere and they're trying to help. They want to help. Mm. They don't know what to do. But it's not like you, you know, you're you're out in the middle of nowhere and you've got no one to look after you. Here there's passers by who will offer assistance. In fact, somebody doesn't somebody say someone should do something about that poor horse. And of course then somebody does something. And then the deputy um, shoots it in the head and and shoots whiskey dead. And there's no, nothing seems to physically change in Kirk Douglas's face because we only hear the gunshot, mm. but you can just see in his eyes yeah. something something dies in him at that moment. It's a ter- it's a terrific piece of acting. As it's my, brutal to watch, but it's terrific. Another note: the pain he experienced at the suffering of his horse and the horror when it was shot, mm. and also. Compassion portrayed by the sheriff at the end when he didn't identify him as the escaped convict. The way the characters were drawn contrasts with today's culture of greed and self-importance. <laughs> Is that what it says? Yes. Oh, in brackets, although the prison guard was true to type. Oh, yeah. So thanks for the notes, Mum. Yeah, yeah, very thorough. <laughs> and thanks for the suggestion. Um, the film ends with um, Burns being taken off to hospital. Yeah. And the final shot. And there's no, there's no end credits. No, there aren't are because they? it's 1962. Um, but the camera just pans down to Burns' hat, oh, lying no. lying at the side of the road, splashed by traffic as it drives past, and just uh, the end caption. I think it's a, it's a, it's a very moving film. It's sort of an elegy for this lost world, of mm. self reliance and. Uh, sticking up for your pals and you know taking no notice of these restrictive rules and doing the right thing but it's also about the danger of living in the past one has to acknowledge the world changes Um, but that even so virtues endure he's loyal to his friends he's he, he gives money to Jerry so that yeah, she, you know, she'll be able to look after herself and look after uh, her son if if the prison break goes wrong. Yes, he's living. I suppose he's living quite selflessly, isn't he? The uh, selflessness of the cowboy. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the sheriff is—he's a—he's a good man. Hmm. He's a—he's a professional lawman. He doesn't play favourites. He gets angry with the general, who is very yeah. cavalier about things, and depending on how you read the ending, he's either professional enough to give someone the benefit of the doubt or compassionate enough to let a man go if he feels that there would be no purpose in forcing them into a prison cell. Yeah. So, cheery stuff. Oh, yes, yeah. As I was saying, I don't think I've ever had a film pull the rug from underneath me quite as comprehensively as this film. I'd got so invested in him getting up that hill. And as I say, that horrible sinking feeling as you're just sitting there going, why hasn't this film stopped? Why is this film... Why are we cutting back to Carol O'Connor? It's just awful. It's the, 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 just this inevitability of the plot. As, and then that moment when you suddenly realise how it's going to end. Ugh. <laughs> <laughs> it's a terrific film, though. <laughs> Thanks to Chris for making the time for this podcast. 
Cinema Limbo is now on iTunes with almost 60 episodes available, so please download, review and subscribe. We're also on Twitter, at cinema underscore limbo, and Podnose is also on Patreon, so please do make a one-off or regular contribution to help us with our running costs. However, until next time, a man shouldn't need a card to tell him who he is. You have been listening to Cinema Limbo, hosted and produced by Jeremy Phillips, with editing and music by Philip Alderman. Cinema Limbo is part of the Podnose Podcasting Network, so please visit us at www.podnose.com. Thank you.